If you want to understand the Bible, not just a particular passage, but understand the Bible itself, this sacred library, what it is, how it works, how we should engage it, it makes sense to take it on its own terms. To ask, for example, how did the author of the Gospel of Matthew understand and engage with Scripture? Or better yet, how did Jesus? For Christians, these are pretty important clues as to how we should read Scripture today. And one of those clues is the focus of this episode. Here it is, right up front. For Jesus, Scripture isn't so much a portrait as a palette. It's not a big painting up on the museum wall defining things. It's that curved piece of wood in the painter's hand, the palette that provides the colors with which we paint the pictures of our lives. The creation story of beauty, the exodus story of freedom, those are colors on the palette, and we can paint with them as we create and illuminate the world around us. If we encounter something wondrous, we can paint it, that is, interpret it, understand it, communicate about it, in the colors of the creation story. Encounter something unjust, some oppression or bondage, and we can paint it in the colors of the Exodus story, God's deliverance from enslavement to freedom. The stories and songs and teachings of the Bible's library are meant to help us see and not just passively see or spectate, but actively create and convey what we see and feel, as a painter does, or a poet. The colors of scripture are the palette with which we paint, or the vocabulary with which we write, the paintings and poems we call our lives. And the path of Christian life, the pilgrimage toward Easter morning and beyond, is full of this kind of active, creative work. And so, what better guides as we make our way along this pilgrimage than a painter and a poet? In our last miniseries, we walked alongside Mary Oliver and E.E. E. Cummings, and in this one, we'll travel with the poet Wendell Berry and the painter Henri Matisse. And we'll start with a famous passage from the Gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, a case in point for how Jesus and the devil, incidentally, understands and engages sacred scripture. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. For most of Wendell Berry's adult life, he's taken a weekly walk, usually in the woods near his Kentucky farm. He calls these jaunts Sabbath walks, and typically that same evening or the next day, each walk results in a Sabbath poem. Over the years, Berry has gathered these into collections of Sabbath poems, and taken together, they amount to an extended meditation on the Sabbath itself which has been a powerful organizing practice in Barry's life. He once wrote, The idea of Sabbath 
is as rich and demanding an idea as any I know. Here's a taste of one of his Sabbath poems. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns, the trees move. The word Sabbath comes from a Hebrew word for stop. The Sabbath day is a time when you stop doing certain things, certain forms of busyness and work. The Sabbath, as this poem makes clear, is for a kind of stillness. And not just any kind of stillness, not being stagnant or passive. This is an alert, alive form of stillness, an intentional walk into the wild. And once there, a quiet, mindful waiting in order to face our fears and sing. As Matthew tells it, Jesus' public ministry begins with his baptism. And no sooner does he arise out of those waters, no sooner does a divine voice declare, This is my child, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Does the Holy Spirit drive Jesus not back into town, but out into the wild to be tempted by the devil, to face his fears, we might say, to face humanity's fears, these core anxieties that thrum under the surface of our days? How will I be nourished? How will I be secure and cared for? How will I get enough to live and thrive, enough money, enough power? In the story, the devil picks up on all three of these fears, one at a time, and makes some helpful suggestions. Remember, at the baptism, the divine voice has just declared Jesus' true identity, God's beloved child. And of course, ideally, parents nourish and care for their children, and that claim, that identity, is precisely where the devil zeroes in. If you are the child of God, the beloved, then, well, you're hungry, right? You haven't eaten for days. You're famished. Here's an idea. Why not take this stone and turn it into bread? I mean, 
You can do that, right? The child of God and all. Oh, and here's another thought. If you are the child of God, well, then God cares for you and will protect you, right? So just to be sure, why not run a little test? Throw yourself down from a high place, right here, the top of the temple, and then God will rescue you, if you're right about being God's beloved. For it is written, and here the devil quotes scripture, God shall command the angels concerning you, so you don't dash your foot against a stone. I mean, that's holy scripture, right? So there you go. That's one way to find out whether you're really God's beloved. So first nourishment, then security, and then a third fear, a fear of not having enough, enough things or wealth or power. The devil says, look, I can give you all that. That's my specialty. Yes, I can give you all the wealth and power in the world, all of this, everything you see. All you have to do is bow down and worship me, serve me, and voila, everything anyone could ever want will be yours. Three times, three temptations, and three times, Jesus sees through the tempter's helpful suggestions and responds by painting a picture using the palette of Scripture, vividly clarifying what's at stake. First, Jesus dips his paintbrush into the story of the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. When they were fed by God with daily portions of manna from heaven, he quotes this line from the story, responding to the devil's suggestion that he make bread out of stone. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, according to that old story, God led the Israelites into the wilderness for 40 years and fed them with manna so that they could learn humility and realize their actual situation of reliance on God's generosity. In other words, to remember who they really are, children of God, nourished by God, loved by God, and called to love God and neighbor. By quoting this story then, Jesus is effectively saying, look, these 40 days in the wilderness, they're no different than the Israelites' 40 years in the wilderness. The purpose and the stakes are the same. I've learned the lesson of the manna. If I turn these stones into bread, that would be to turn away from the Spirit's humbling education. It would be to forget and deny my true identity and circumstance. It'd be to say, no, I'll rely on myself, not on God. I will be my own benefactor. I will play the role of God in my life, nourishing myself. I will trust in my own hand. That's the first temptation, to give in to the fear of deprivation and to be so self-absorbed as to imagine that we are gods rather than the beloved children of God, recipients of God's gifts at every turn. Bread, yes, and also every other kind of nourishment.
And so Jesus rebuffs the temptation by speaking through Scripture, dabbing his paintbrush in the ancient story, interpreting the present, revealing the present, by way of the classic colors of salvation history. Against the second temptation, he makes the same move, this time quoting Scripture against Scripture. The devil quotes the Psalms, and Jesus quotes the story of Moses at Mount Sinai. First, do not put God to the test, and then worship and serve only God. On one level, these temptations attempt to lure us into imagining ourselves as God's examiner or God's rival. But on a deeper level, the whole reason these things are tempting in the first place is fear. Fear of deprivation, fear of vulnerability, fear of poverty, fear of not having enough nourishment, security, and power. Those are the fears that can stand in the way of being who we are, beloved children of God. And those are the fears that Jesus, the child of humanity, goes into the wilderness to face. With Barry, we can imagine him there, sitting still among the trees, or among the desert shrubs and stones and dust as the case may be. It's a kind of Sabbath, a clearing away of distractions. All his stirring becomes quiet around him, like circles on water. He remembers the baptism, the divine voice, this is my child, the beloved, and then confronts the tempter's voice, who skillfully plants seeds of doubt. God will not nourish you. Nourish yourself. God will not care for you. Test God and see. God will not give you what you need. Bow down to me and I will. You're right to be afraid. Boiled all the way down, that's the great temptation in this story. Be afraid. Trust no one. Act on the basis of your fear. When Henri Matisse was a 19-year-old law student, he fell ill, and his mother, to help him pass the time, gave him a box of paints. He never looked back. He put it this way, From the moment I held the box of colors in my hands, I knew this was my life. I threw myself into it like a beast that plunges toward the thing it loves. An early art critic called the young Matisse a fauve, French for wild beast, because of the bright, bold colors he used for his portraits and landscapes, unexpected colors, quite different from how things look to the eye alone. But Matisse's idea was that painting shouldn't merely reproduce what is seen, but rather communicate what the painter feels, the painter's emotions about what is seen. In his coastal landscape, the roofs of Collioure, very few, if any, of the colors he chose were true to the visible scene, but those bright oranges and pinks and greens and blues 
were instead true to his emotions about the scene, and together they evoke a sense of joy and warmth and communal vitality that the visible colors alone would leave out. Matisse was still interested in realism, but a realism that included the heart, not just the eye. Many writers in the Bible's library had similar goals. This passage in Matthew, for example, is written in the spare, stylized manner of a fable. Suddenly we're on top of a temple, then we're on top of a mountain and survey all the kingdoms of the earth, right? This isn't journalism. This is something deeper, a form of storytelling most interested in getting down to the essence of things, bold strokes, vivid colors, oranges and pinks and greens and blues, the visible facts, yes, but also the invisible facts, the emotions, the stakes, the core, the human experience in all its practical, emotional, vibrant color. You can see it in Barry's poem, too, the stylized rhythms, the parallels and echoes, the symmetry. It's not that it isn't true, it is true, just as those really are the roofs of Collioure. What's at issue is the kind of true the story is. Forty days, the wilderness, three temptations, three responses, how the story dives down to a truth deeper than the surface of things, right down to our deepest fears. And the deepest remedy, too, the opposite of fear, which is courage, which is faith, which is trust. Trust that we really are children of God, beloved, forgiven, embraced, in whom God is well pleased. Boiled all the way down, that's the good news in this story, at once embodied and proclaimed by Jesus in the wilderness. Trust in God, come what may, do not be afraid. Act and sing and be who you are in bold and vivid color on the basis of that trust. And when you need to, when the busyness and distractions, the tasks of life overwhelm you, take a walk, once a week perhaps, if it feels right, an intentional, mindful Sabbath walk into the wild. Jesus, Wendell, and Henri is a miniseries by Strange New World, a SALT project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has devotionals for Lent based on the work of Wendell Berry and Henri Matisse, which include more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find them in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.